0: on the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors.
1: Hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I am your host, Chris Fleming here as always. And today I have the honor of hosting Raj Saada on the podcast. His self-named law practice based in New Jersey specializes in delivering sound legal counsel and aggressive representation for clients, taking great pride and care, guiding them through personal and life-changing matters. Raj, thanks for being here and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Chris.
1: Yes, it's going to be fun. So I'm sure you have an interesting backstory why don't you just kind of briefly walk through us through the history of what led you to where you are today?
2: Sure, sure. I grew up in New Jersey, and I grew up to
1: immigrant parents
2: I'm in a relatively urban part of New Jersey. Uh, thankfully, they enabled me to go to college, and then I went to Penn Law School. And after that, um, I, I clerked for a judge in New Jersey who is still my mentor today. Um, after that, I worked for a handful of law firms before kind of realizing I, I think I could do this number one, on my own, and number two, in a, a probably in a, a better, more client-focused, uh, in a, a more efficient kind of manner. So I, I ventured out nine years ago, started the practice, and thankfully it has grown to where we have 10 employees, um, and we appear throughout lovely New Jersey. So that's okay. Kind of in a nutshell.
1: So you said two things there that I want to kind of ask you about. So not every attorney decides to go out on their own, right? So you said one, it was, it was attractive to you to, to do it on your own. And the second one is you could do it in a better or maybe a more efficient way. So maybe just elaborate on that. Like, you know, what was it, did you feel like about you that led you that you wanted to do it on your own? And what were some of the limitations, you know, that you saw that you could improve upon by being able to run your own deal? Sure, sure. and And
2: this, you know, comes from a little bit of personal experience uh, mm-hmm. on being on the ground. But when you learn how to practice, when you know how to practice, you, you can do it anywhere. So it's a, uh, it's a skill that's very, very transferable, whether I work for someone else, whether I work for the government or whether I'm self-employed, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Once I figured that out, I, I was able to kind of dissect where I, I was at the time and realize that a lot of, it was in a good, very successful, very large law firm. It just seemed a little bit more of a machine Um, that needed to be fed as opposed to that needed to do good work. And it it did good work. I just think the priority wasn't doing the good work. And I I thought I could create something where good work was the priority and that would would lead to internal uh, growth for my operation and me professionally and personally. Um, So I took the gamble and um, nine years ago uh, until now, here's where we are.
1: Good. Yeah, I like how you said that. I can relate to some of that in my own personal experience, too. Different professional service, but definitely same mindset. So if you could go back in time, maybe nine years, there might be some mistakes or maybe things that you could correct or or you wish you could do over. If you could go back nine years, talk to the younger you, um, what do you think maybe some advice that you would give that person? Something you know now that you wish you knew when you started out? Yeah, it's it's actually a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is the name of my
2: law firm. So the name of my law firm is the law office of me. um, And that's still the name of the firm today. It kind of implies that I am alone. I am on my own. I I am a one man ship, which Mm -hmm. is not the case today. It was the case nine years ago. I did not have the foresight uh, to see where it would go and, and to this day, I still get a little some confusion about other attorneys being working with me in the team, a, a large staff working with me in the team. Um, so, if I could go back, I would pick a name that's a little bit more universal. It's still nothing deceptive I'm going to use or misleading. I, I wouldn't yeah. put like side then partners or side right. and associates when I'm alone, but it would be something a little bit that doesn't make it look as
1: small as it was. Yeah, later on in yeah, because you can get that question like, well, what happens? What's going to happen to my attorney or what's going to happen who's representing me if something happens to you even though you have a team that is there that supports you but i think that's a common thing especially in law practices where they don't realize where it's going to go Mm-mm, absolutely right? not yeah and you know i wish we could go back but you know
2: even going back i mean even if i had an idea that it could go this route the fact that i didn't even know if i wanted to go down this route i maybe right. i wanted to stay small yeah but either way that flexibility all would have been a lot easier yeah. to execute with a a little bit more of a universal name.
1: Yeah. Okay. So then how did you come to determine the focus of your firm services? How'd you hone in on that?
2: Yeah. So when I came out of law school in 2010, um, it was at the, we were in the recession at the time. So a, a lot of industries were either gone or drying up. A lot of clients, large institutional clients were no longer existed anymore. Um, so that impacted the legal landscape and the legal employment landscape universally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wanted to be in court. I knew I wanted to do, do litigation and I hopped across, came across my mentor who i knew at the time but he he explained to me that it's high level litigation it's not what you see on tv number one and number two it is recession proof so in a high market in a low market people always need help with family matters whether it's you know not so good things like divorces or if it's good things like helping people get married with prenuptial agreements or even saving marriages yeah so you know looking into it looking into the the real intellectual parts of the field that's where i decided to go into and that's where we still are primarily
1: Okay. Yeah. And we're going to dive in a little bit on a couple of your areas of expertise in a little bit. So I'm curious, is there something um, that you especially like about your practice right now?
2: Yeah, I love my team. I can tell you I have a great, great team. There are five attorneys on the team. In addition to me, we have five staff people as well. Um, they, are, they are very diverse in terms of age, in terms of race, gender, um, socioeconomic background even geographical, like location, like everyone is not necessarily in the office in mm-hmm. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, we work notwithstanding that diversity. We, we work extremely well together. We all take the job and our, our own careers very, very seriously. And it just, you know, together, it, it just comes together in a beautiful mix that, you know, enables the firm to be successful and enables us to do really good work for our clients. So it's, it's really, really fulfilling.
1: So, Raj, do you think that was by chance or circumstance, or that you were just lucky, or I mean, not that you would necessarily give yourself all the credit, but what what do, would you attribute that to?
2: So, it was attributable primarily to the growth of the firm. I, I when as the firm grew, I didn't, I wasn't irresponsible with you know the the growth. I didn't mm-hmm. you know spend it all or anything like that. I wanted to grow the option and make it more efficient, make it bigger, make it better. So. Um, I did that, but then finding the good people is hard. I mean, it's yeah, and and Especially they know, now. yeah, yeah I, they know that. I tell them that, but what, and once you have them, though, you treat them well, you involve them, and they are good, independent professionals unto themselves. And you know, I I, I certainly can't take credit for, for them being them, but the team putting it together, I'll take credit for that. But everything else,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that. All right. So let's a little bit. What would you say is um, a typical or an ideal client that you serve in your practice?
2: Sure, an ideal client is one who is uh, responsive, one who takes our advice. A lot of our clients don't listen to a word we say, which is fine, you know, it's, it's their prerogative, it's yeah. their lives. Right. Um, it just makes everyone's lives, including their own, a lot easier if they did indeed listen to what we are suggesting to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, an ideal client is one who is realistic, who doesn't necessarily, you know, blame us for, the horrible things that happen in the world, the horrible things that are happening in their lives. You know, we, we certainly didn't cause their divorce. We're not even, you know, encouraging it necessarily. We're just mm-hmm. facilitating it based on needs. Um, and then at the end of the day, after the case is over, whether it's by trial or by settlement, it's a thank you very much. Thank you for your service. If they need anything else in the future, which often is the case for family matters. I mean, you can modify where yeah. you can modify custody. They think of us as well. And even if, you know, they know someone else who might need our help, they also send people our way. I mean, that's, you know, if, if I could summarize a perfect client, that would yeah. potentially be yeah.
1: Okay. Do you think there's some common like misconceptions that people have about what, either what you can accomplish for them or the type of work that you do that you, you help them overcome? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so when it comes to lawyers and what we do we
2: largely don't make up what is happening or what has happened mm-hmm. we just have to kind of work with what has happened or, or is happening and try to spin the best way we can for our clients not just to enable them to be successful but a lot oftentimes it's to, to offset and mitigate their risk their exposure mm-hmm. so you know we can't change we can't lie to courts we do not yeah. lie to judges but we, we can be really artful and be strategic and spinning things in a very creative way to minimize exposure. What, what we cannot do, however, is do anything that's when you use the word frivolous, it's a very legal term, but you know, we can try to advocate for things that are um, that are a little out there in terms of trying to be novel and be creative. Uh, but we can't do things that are just plain. No, there is no cognizable way under any realistic, you know, in the scope of the universe that we're going to put something forth and you know when clients want us to do that when we tell them we can't and we explain to them why they end up not liking it and then trying to find another lawyer uh, who is willing to take that professional and ethical risk so which is okay i'm okay with that but yeah uh, you know
1: they want a certain answer they're just looking for support on that or from someone to tell them that they can pursue that we can't. I mean, we look. We're realistic
2: behind closed doors with our clients. We're very candid with them in a, you know, in a very tactful way, you know. But out to when the doors are open and we're out in, on the ground, you know, in the line of fire, we we advocate. Um, but you know, if they're just seeking validation, even though you know, sometimes clients ask us for that, they're like, yeah. "Just tell me what I want to hear." I'm like, "No, right. like that right. is not my job, sir. Like, right. <laughs> no, sir, or no, ma'am. Yeah,
1: yeah, because it's not going to be good for you anyway." Okay, oh. so. Let's jump into some of your areas of expertise. So why why is it often necessary for people to have representation when considering a divorce? I mean, because some people are like, well, we don't have a lot of stuff and we kind of agreed on in principle. So, you know, we don't really need to hire someone. So why why is that often necessary?
2: So you you often, as a person who's going through a divorce, you don't know what you don't know. You, it's not about just purely dividing your stuff. It's also not understanding what the other side's stuff is and what your right to it might be. You still might agree to waive it, but mm-hmm. at least you know. The, you might have debts the other side may be responsible for. As long as you know that the other side may be responsible for it, you may still be okay with waiving it, but at least you'll know. Mm-hmm. There may be support obligations that you may have that may, you know, at least you should have some insight on or some right to support that you may have that you didn't know about before our mm-hmm. conversation and mm-hmm. you know from there how do you determine the right amount of support as well as the duration of that support obligation all of that will be impactful uh, and, and is yeah. important for starting to educate you on and we didn't even touch upon child issues right so there are a lot of things that uh, you don't necessarily know about until you get a lawyer and if you try to i can tell you many 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 times people who try to put together like a back of the napkin kind of settlement yeah. When something goes awry, they pay a lot more in lawyer fees to fix it than right. they would have if they just did it right the first time. So,
1: yeah, they did some planning in advance. Well, and how many times has this happened to you where um, maybe a, a potential client comes in and they're like, all right, I, I spent all last night on the Internet and I looked all this stuff up and, you know, I got a couple questions, but I think I've got it all figured out. And, you know, they, and they just want you to kind of validate or to say, yeah, you, you really are smart.
2: You know, it's 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 very often. And look, it's not necess- it's not rocket science, right? It, yeah. it's, it's it's just it's very discretionary, and you don't necessarily know how judges will balance everything when you know push comes to shove and the presentation is made, and you don't know the right way to present it to begin with. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, a high level like looking up the law is easy, but you know, putting pen to, you can read about how to perform a surgery, but you know, try to you know put put the scalpel on yeah. someone.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, there is. And I just was talking about this with someone else previously where there's an infinite amount of knowledge, but it's the implementation of that in the right way. It's the wisdom part. And having that experience is what's lacking where you just described the outcome you might think could be bad and it cost you more money in the long run to correct that or fix it than if you would use someone who understands all that and can apply their wisdom into a situation to prevent that. Execution is everything. Execution yeah. is Yeah. Okay. So I noticed on your website that you also have especially with complex divorces. All right. So in your in your opinion, what makes the divorce complex, maybe from a asset standpoint, and what unique problems occur when you're dealing with a high net worth divorce situation? Sure. And uh, you know, complex
2: is a very loaded term. It's a very big right. term. Yeah. Uh, Assets, you have to identify the asset, you have to value the asset, and then you have to distribute the asset. So identifying the asset, usually everyone is pretty candid in terms of disclosing what what they have. That's really the point. That's the the way divorce litigation and generally all litigation is designed. I mm-hmm. mean, um, it's not supposed to be a poker game where you keep everything in your chest. You're supposed to right. show everyone cards. But that doesn't always happen. Right. And being able to sift through documents, sift through records to identify where money is going. And if it goes in a direction that doesn't make sense or it's not adding up, the weight and the ability to probe further and to employ the requisite investigatory kind of techniques, and it's called discovery, discovery mm. techniques, to disclose what may be elsewhere um, is really, really important. If you don't identify an asset, asset can't be divided. Right then you have to value the asset. Not all assets are like homes where you can just get an appraisal or a, a comparative market analysis. Absolutely not. This is not like a car where you can just look at a Kelly Blue Book value. How do you value a share, someone's share of a medical practice? How do you value a share of a, a multi-member professional practice that isn't sold on the stock market? Mm-hmm. How do you value a minority stakes versus a majority stakes? Believe it or not, if a company is worth a million dollars, 40% of that company isn't necessarily worth $400,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you value those things? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, distributing. It's not necessarily 50-50. And in some states, like California, California is a community property state. All assets are divided 50-50. It's really mm-hmm. simple. But in New Jersey, it's called an equitable distribution state. It's not necessarily 50-50. And everything can impact the division of all assets, including that one particular asset. It may be 60-40. It may be 100-0. to It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to be 50-50. It often is, but it doesn't have to be. So um, that's what really get important.
1: So what do you generally find clients are most concerned with when they go through like a divorce ordeal? I mean, some common things. I mean, there's the emotional part. And you, I'm sure you have to manage their expectations and their emotions. So how have you found the kind of the best way to help guide them through that process? Cause it, it is an emotional thing, right? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And, and, it, and it comes with the territory. It's beyond our, our pay grade. I mean, but you know, we, we absolutely have to deal with it. We deal with sometimes those communications where, you know, it's the holidays and someone is lonely for the first time in many, many years. Yeah, uh, We deal with situations where they are not necessarily with, their children for the first Mm -hmm. time in their entire lives you know but but in terms of the more uh substantive things that have to be dealt with it's the most important thing generally at least my perspective of it yeah i mean money people can always make more money Mm -hmm. people can always save money you know money is not something that you will never see again but with time with your children you can't get that get that back you can't say you know I'm, i'm gonna miss the first four years of my child's life life and try to make up for it, you know, the next 14 years yeah. doesn't work. Right. So, you know, when it comes to time, that is what I try to emphasize is most important. And maybe I'm projecting a little bit because personally that would be most important to me, Yeah, um, but that's what I try to, you know, okay. to judge people, you know, to allocate people's values towards that yeah. direction.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's well said. Cause you can't always make more money but you, like you said, you can't get the time back um, and the relationships. And those are the top thing. Okay, so switching topics just a little bit, Raj. Well, actually quite a bit. Um, I know that you also have some expertise around uh, foreclosures and real estate dealings. So maybe just talk to us first about, well, this was a big thing in, after the financial crisis, short sales, foreclosures, things of that nature. But those things do still go on and you know, more interest rates are gonna start rising. And if people have adjustable mortgages and stuff, you could see maybe a rise in those types of things. So let's just start basically on a high level with the definition of kind of what a foreclosure is and what the process is of foreclosure. Sure.
2: And, uh, you know, it actually ties in wonderfully with divorce because, you know, a lot of times real estate matters have to be dealt with in a divorce, including, and foreclosure oftentimes causes a divorce, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Mm -hmm. A foreclosure in New Jersey is a court action. It's something you have to, as a lender, you have to effectuate in court. Okay. There's a process for it and it really is not necessarily where the bank takes your house. It, it forecloses your right to redeem your mortgage, to pay off your mortgage. At the end of the foreclosure case, it's a whole big lawsuit. There's a whole bunch of pro- procedures involved, but at the end, after the judgment of foreclosure is entered, when a judgment is entered, that means the case is over someone won, someone lost. Yeah, Judgment of foreclosure means the bank won or the foreclosing lender won. The next step is what's called a sheriff's sale, just like in a criminal matter. If you're found guilty by a jury, there's another step. It's called Mm sentencing. How long are you Mm going to spend in prison or jail? What are your fines going to be, et cetera. For a foreclosure, the next step is a sheriff's sale. This is where the sheriff in the county where the property is located auctions off your property to the highest bidder, at at least at what's called a minimum price, at an upset price. Mm -hmm. If the property is purchased, then the bidder gets title to the property the prior owner that's when they lose title to the property yeah. it doesn't go to the bank but if nobody bids or if nobody bids enough to reach the upset price then the foreclosing lender gets the deed to the property and the foreclosing lender at that point becomes the owner of the property that's okay. important and if not so
1: then they can sell it from there if they wanted to do that the, the lender or the bank they okay. typically
2: they typically do they typically yeah.
1: do yeah i know during the financial crisis the the more lenders or the banks were The owners of a lot of those properties, especially like down here in Florida. So you were buying it from them. Okay, so what options then would people have to avoid this because there's some things you can do some steps you can take or some tactics to maybe avoid having to go that far. Um, So what are those on a high level. Sure. From a, at
2: least the ones that exist now, I'll just I'll just touch upon really briefly yeah. what used to happen, what used to be. When Obama was in office, there were some special federal programs that enabled uh, people to do, effectuate short sales mm-hmm. in ways that were a little unorthodox. And the rationale on the back end is because the federal government was compensating the banks for a lot of their losses. Mm-hmm. So banks were completely OK with effectuating short, short sales yeah. uh, right. Those went away with uh, President Trump, and they're still not here with President Biden. So if you're in foreclosure, you have to try to prevent it. There's a number of ways. Number one is what's called a short sale. Short sale, when it comes to stocks, is something different than when it comes to real estate. Short sale, when it comes to real estate, means you are selling the property for less than the amount owing to pay off all liens and mortgages. So Mm -hmm. if your mortgage is $500,000 and your property is only worth $400,000, the bank has has the Essentially, take less than mm-hmm. what is going in order to effectuate, in order to approve the sale and to remove mm-hmm. their lien. The issues with that is you, you, number one, have to get the bank to agree that $400,000 is the value of the property. Mm-hmm. Number two, the bank has to agree to accept the $400,000, let's just hypothetically say, payoff mm-hmm. for the property. And then, uh, number three, you have to be mindful that the difference between the outstanding mortgage and how much the bank accepted. Now that's considered, that's treated to you as taxable income. So if you sell your property for a hundred thousand dollars short, the IRS under the the tax laws treats that hundred thousand dollars shortfall as income to you, and you're going to have to claim it on your tax returns as if you received it, and you're going to pay taxes as if you make made a hundred thousand dollars more than you usually did. Yeah, that's that's one option. The other option is what's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure. This Mm -hmm. basically is where you agree to transfer title to the bank and they agree to to forego uh, foreclosing on you. The bank has to, number one, accept that. And number two, the bank has to get clear title. If there are junior liens, in other words, if there's a second mortgage, or if there are judgments, you're not going to be able to convey clear title to the first bank, which means deed in lieu is out of the question. And there are loan modification options. There's forbearance options, but those are if you want to try to keep your property. Okay. Uh, but th- those are those are all different ways to mitigate or prevent foreclosure.
1: And was it true, Raj, that in our example where it was five hundred thousand, you got the bank to agree to four, you sell it, the hundred thousand dollars is taxable to you? Was it true previously under the different administrations that that was waived or that that hundred thousand in our example, people didn't actually have to pay income tax on that.
2: Yeah. When it, you're absolutely right. What it was a prior, it used to be the law there was a special okay. law, the mortgage debt relief act. And it was That's right. for a number of years, uh, but that stopped as well. It right? sunset. Right. And, but that only applied to primary residences. It mm-hmm. didn't apply to second homes. It didn't apply yeah. to commercial properties or non-residential properties. Uh, but yes, that, that law did exist. It doesn't, okay. Anymore, though.
1: Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. So I'm curious outside of your practice, if there's something that you're really passionate about personally, I noticed on your website that you were involved in something called the, is it the WAFA house or the WAFA house? So maybe you could tell us more about that. Sure. WAFA
2: house is uh, something I've, as an organization I volunteered for. Um, it is a domestic violence kind of and shelter group. It does a lot of social services for Um, A lot of people, particularly women, particularly mothers in and around uh, an urban area in in Passaic County, New Jersey, around Patterson, New Jersey, I used to do um, one domestic violence trial per week for them. So that's how I I ended up getting a lot of trial experience really, really fast by volunteering and doing good work, helping people, usually women. Get restraining orders against their abusers. That's what I did. I am also involved in about a handful of nonprofits. I am a board member of the Council for American Islamic Relations in the New Jersey chapter. I am a board of advisors member of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights at Rutgers Law School. So I, I do those things, you know, just as a, a way to kind of give back and yeah. share my perspective.
1: Nice campus, Rutgers, too. Yeah, it's uh, Rutgers Law School is in Newark, though. It's I don't know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's not where the main college is. I don't know. I went to college there in New Brunswick, but okay, gotcha. All right, so we're getting close to the end. I'm curious, what do you kind of see going forward as the biggest opportunity for the future of your practice? What are you excited about?
2: Yeah, I I mean, we we just hired our fifth uh, attorney on top of me, so there's six of us now. It's really scaling it and growing it. Uh, from a geographic standpoint, we're trying to get out of. We're, we're really cent- saturated in central New Jersey. Okay. We have some good footprints in north and central in north and south Jersey as well. Um, we're trying to kind of expand and you know get our our uh, footprints in there as well. In addition, we're trying to expand carefully though. Carefully expand practice areas. Mm-hmm. That's how we develop like criminal defense practice. We have the residential real estate and the commercial real estate foreclosure practice. So we have a handful of practices, but you know, adding it strategically um, yeah. is the next goal. But that's easier said than done as well. We're working yeah. on it.
1: Well, all good problems to have. So maybe on the flip side of that and along those same lines, um, what do you kind of view being the visionary of your practice? What do you view as maybe the biggest challenge or obstacle that is facing the practice that is yet to be overcome?
2: I, I think, you know, when it comes to the, the, the practice itself, There's always a lot of lawyers. There's a ton of lawyers in New Jersey. I mean, outside of like Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, New Jersey has the most lawyers. So technically, I mean, conceptually, you, you would think there's more competition. But, you know, there's not a lot of lawyers who do who litigate and there's not a lot of lawyers who litigate on a high level. So, you know, it's kind of continuously educating our potential clients, the public, our consumers as to what we do and how we're different. And that's an ongoing process. It's not just, you know, sending a message out to the stars and, you know, keeping yeah. our friends across. Absolutely. It's, it's a repetitive, a repetitive process. And yeah. you know, if the firm is going to continue, it's going to be, you know, maintaining that ongoing marketing, that ongoing uh, public education and communication.
1: Yeah. It's almost yeah the ways that you potentially can differentiate. And it's almost picking those lanes that you're really good at driving in. And then the people that are in, the need of those kinds of services, having them find you first as the expert in that area, that's very similar to kind of our industry in terms of how we can build a practice. Or even I think of medical doctors where they pick a specialty. Yeah, it's and look, it's transferable. I mean, marketing, the
2: principles of marketing, you know, they, they're universal. It doesn't just apply to yeah. with knickknacks or or in the online death right. professionals. Yeah. Or widgets. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if people want to mer- learn more about you or your practice or your firm, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: The best way, the easiest way, the quickest way is to go to our website, which is www.bajehes.com. It's R-A-J-E-H-S as in Sam, A-A-D as in David, dot com. You'll see our bios. You'll see links to all of our attorney bios. You'll have easy access to contact us, whether it's by chat, whether it's by the contact us feature, the phone number is on there, whatever you want. That's the easiest way to to find us.
1: Okay. So everyone, please go to the website to check out Raj and his firm. And I want to thank you, Raj, for taking the time to be here with me today. It's been a true pleasure. Very informative. Um, And I want to thank everybody for listening and watching the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we are raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, listening and watching. And Raj, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yep. Everybody be well and be safe. Take care. We'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.